If you want to take out your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We have, um, we've got a big passage in front of us, 41 verses. So, I, I, yeah, this is one of those days you want to have a coffee with you. Uh, if you don't have one, too bad, it's too late. It's go time now. A couple of years ago, uh, I witnessed um, kind of a multi-car accident over here, um, kind of over where Sourdough Sam's Cafe used to be, right? And I wish one of you would buy it and put a little cafe in there because I need something closer in this side of town than everything else. So, but There was a car, there's a little side street there, and the car was coming out and trying to make a left turn back onto university and head down towards uh, Fred Meyer. And um, they kind of quicked it, misjudged it, and as they were racing across, they got clipped on the back end of their car, which sent them spinning across the median into oncoming traffic. So it was definitely a, a bad one. Um, thankfully, everybody was okay, and myself and others who saw it stayed so we could give a report. And I remember after giving my report, the officer asked me uh, if I would be willing to be a witness in court if it was needed. And I said, you bet I would. I've got teenagers driving around here now. You bet I'd be a witness. I'll come. I'm, and I, don't, I never got called. I think probably because I was too eager. So <laughs> they didn't call me. Um, so if you ever want to not be a witness, there you go. Just show some eagerness. But I want you to think about that request. Are you willing to be a witness? Are you willing to give testimony to something that you have seen or heard or experienced, or been a party to. Um, this is what Jesus not only asks us to do, but in fact commands us to do. We are to be his witnesses. And as we're going to see today, this event of Pentecost, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is particularly to equip God's people with power to be his witnesses. Oftentimes when we look at this passage, we get caught up in the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, and we have all kinds of questions about that and what's going on, and sometimes that discussion can eclipse the purpose. And I want to really focus on the purpose of Pentecost here, and you can see it right in your notes, if that'll help you kind of track this morning, right at the top, the bullet point here, the purpose of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is to fulfill God's promise to empower his people for obedience, and to equip God's people to serve as his witnesses. So chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And we're going to stop right there already. We're already stopping. So here we have the disciples gathered together in obedience, right? This is what Christ had instructed them to do. Most likely this is uh, the 120, not just the 12, but sort of the bigger the bigger group. That was what was mentioned previously in chapter 1, 15, and that seems to be kind of the most natural reading here. Also, it says all together, and it doesn't specify the 12. So we think this is probably the larger group. And Pentecost, if you don't know, it was part of sort of the Jewish festival cycle. There were three pilgrimage festivals in Jerusalem each year. The first is Passover, the second one is Pentecost, which is 50 days later. And the third, uh, Feast of Tabernacles. So Pentecost, named so because of 50, 50 days after, uh, after pass, uh, Passover. And it's also sometimes called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Fruits. Uh, it was a spring festival. 
And so what they would do is they would oftentimes bring the first fruits of their harvest in maybe sheaves, and they would also um, offer a couple loaves of bread to the Lord. It was just a way of saying, all that we have is yours. This comes from your hand, and we're going to recognize that. Um, It also kind of took on another significance because it it celebrated the time when God gave the law to them uh, just because of its timing and when they came out of Egypt. So those two things, first fruits and also kind of celebrating the giving of the law. Why does this matter that we would know this? Well, one of the reasons is because it explains why there's so many people from all of the surrounding areas in Jerusalem. Uh, just a, just a huge, uh, huge group of people from all over the place. And I think in this we can see really this, this, just the strategic working of God. And he wants his gospel message to go out throughout the world. He picks this occasion when the world is gathered in this place as an occasion for it to spread from there. Um, and it also seems to me that God uses some of these, these festivals or these events and the significance of them when he, when he kind, of, uh, kind of carries out a particular event that matches it. In other words, in Passover, Israel's looking back to the time when God rescues uh, his people, right, from bondage in Egypt. And they are to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood, put it over the door, Posts of the, of the home, and the destroyer is to pass over. And it was at this celebration when Christ himself is crucified. He is our true and better Passover lamb, right? And in this same celebration, Pentecost, or first fruits, uh, we have the people coming and giving the first fruits of their harvest to the Lord. But we also find in this instance, the Lord sort of gives them the Holy Spirit, empowers them for the first harvest of the church. 3,000 people joined their number that day. So it's kind of like these festivals aren't just arbitrary gatherings, but they seem to have pedagogical value or they're instructive, something that they teach. And then Jesus or the Lord sort of fills it up with even kind of a greater divine activity. If you think of our true and better series, we kind of see some of that happening here. So the Holy Spirit is poured out. And what we understand here is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of prophecy or the spirit of promise. In other words, this event is not a surprise. This is something that was foretold. God has promised this. Um, In fact, we saw Jesus even talk about it specifically in John's gospel, right? He says, very truly I tell you, It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, and that's speaking of the Holy Spirit, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I remarked to you guys a couple weeks ago, I think that's just a shocking statement that Jesus said. If I was there and he says, hey, Eric, you know, it's good that I leave. I'm, I hands up. How, How can this be good? How can it be good that Jesus departs? Uh, But what we see here is that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, then God, the Holy Spirit, dwells with his people in a new way. Not just the occasional filling, maybe of one person in one time for an occasion, but now a permanent indwelling. And not just of one individual, but all of God's people at the same time. One of the most remarkable things for me to consider is this, that the same Holy Spirit that is in you is in me. 
You don't have your own personal version. God the Holy Spirit indwells his people simultaneously. This also means that they are not left with this rigid law that they, are, that they know they cannot keep, but rather that God has put their spirit within them, empowering them for obedience. And we see this in Ezekiel 36, right? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We have power from God to obey that we did not have before because of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in our life. So this, this promised Holy Spirit we saw in promise from Ezekiel, uh, from Jeremiah, from Isaiah, from Joel, we'll see later on, John the Baptist, and Jesus. And then the second point here, we see, again, the Holy Spirit empowers us for obedience. And I want you just to think about all the things that the Holy Spirit does for you. Maybe you have forgotten to think about this or consider it, or maybe you, you didn't know. But think about this. The Holy Spirit of God first of all, regenerates us. He gives us spiritual life, like the waking up of dead men. We were spiritually dead, and now in him we are alive. He fills us, which means that he permeates, his influence permeates every corner of our life. In the same way that sin, we talk about total depravity, got into every corner of our life and, and wrecked things, So this is the reversing of the curse. The Holy Spirit who indwells us sets these things to right and begins to restore us. He is our constant companion. He seals us in the family of God. He reminds us of the teachings of Jesus. He illuminates the scripture. He convicts us of sin and at the same time assures us of forgiveness in our sonship in the family of God. He equips us with power for obedience and service, and he guides us in our daily life. In other words, the Holy Spirit's a game changer, right? It's a big deal. The Holy Spirit makes all of the difference in the world. It is what separates dead religion from a vital relationship with the living God. Um, A couple of years ago, Amy and I were having a garage sale, and we've pretty much given up on garage sales. Thank God for Facebook marketplace and whatever else. Uh, but we were having a garage sale and we had our stuff out. And we had this uh, lovely black couple that came in and we're kind of looking around at some of the things that we had and they're really gregarious. And um, we had some of our Christian books out and maybe some old CDs and whatever. And the fellow was so funny. Uh, he just had this great intonation the way he said it. He says, oh, we got some spiritual folks here. And it just made us laugh. It's one of those things that we kind of repeat at home every now and then. But what made us spiritual is not that we had Christian books or Christian CDs. What makes us spiritual is that we have, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit. We're not spiritual because of what we do. We're spiritual because of who God has put within us. It is a game changer. I like the way John Stott has said it. So a body without breath is a corpse. So the church without the Holy Spirit is dead. Uh, I think it's also worth noting here that the Spirit's function is never to draw attention to himself. And this may be counter to your expectation. 
The Spirit's function is always to draw attention to Christ. Um, We see this in John 16. Jesus speaking says, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all of the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So what I, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a warning here. If you find yourself in a church or a fellowship or a Bible study or something, and the constant focal point is the Holy Spirit or phenomenon of the Holy Spirit, I just want to tell you, be wary. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention to Christ, not himself. He will glorify me. Um, sometimes we're driving down the road and um, you might see something on your windshield that kind of gets your attention, right? Usually it's a new crack. Um, it always makes me laugh, not so much laugh, annoys me. <laughs> what, we don't use sand up here on the roads, but like gravel, right? Full gravel. So we all have chips in our windshield and you can be driving down the road and think, is that, an, is that another one? And for a moment, you stop looking through your windshield and you start looking at your windshield. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, is that thing, is it spreading? Is it starting to get those little wings? This is going to be a crack, you know, and you start looking at it. And then you realize, I'm in the other lane, right? <laughs> I've, I've drifted over. And, and that same phenomenon of sort of, instead of looking through, looking at, I think that's, that's maybe a way you can think about the Holy Spirit. We're not meant to look at the Spirit, but by him we are meant to see Jesus. Or another way you could think about it is this, like a flashlight. Don't look at the light, don't put it in your eyes, but by it we are meant to, we are meant to see. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me. So overall, it's a good thing, amazingly, that Jesus left so that his disciples could all simultaneously be indwelt and empowered by God the Holy Spirit who continues to conform us to the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of prophecy or promise uh, by the, the prophets that we saw here. But he is not given merely for our personal benefit. Not merely for that. The Spirit empowers disciples for the mission of God. In other words, we're given the Holy Spirit not just to be something, but to do something. He absolutely has a ministry to us, but he intends to have a ministry through us to others. So our next point, we are empowered to be his witnesses. Um, This is what Acts 1.8 tells us about, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so understanding that that's the purpose, now we get to see how that is how that unfolds. Now we go to verse 2. Are you a little scared now? We're on verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, 
Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? And I'm just going to say a lot of different languages are spoken of there from the Parthians to uh, the Cretans and Arabs, saying, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Uh, okay, so I think most of you know, I, I'm, I grew up in Southern California, right? And as you guys like to give me a hard time about, California is a good place to be from, as I've been told, right? To be from. And one of the things we have in California, not just sunshine and traffic and smog, earthquakes. And I experienced a lot of them. In fact, we lived about 45 minutes away from the Landers quake, which was about 7.4. And I remember that woke us up out of our sleep. And I can remember standing in the hallway of our home, trying to stay on my feet because it was moving so much. Um, but, and we get some earthquakes here in Alaska too. And the funny thing about them is you kind of hear them before you feel them, right? You think, oh, is there a box truck driving up right now? What is this rumbling? And then you start feeling the shaking. And this is sort of what came to mind as, as we're kind of given this description of, of the Holy Spirit being poured out. They hear a sound first and then this visual and then this phenomenon of hearing what were previously unlearned languages, real languages, but previously unlearned. And again, all of this is meant to be a means of empowerment for the disciples to be Christ's witnesses. That's what Acts 1.8 tells us. This all fits under that. So how does this event and this phenomenon equip them to do that? So I'm going to say that there's three ways. First of all, and I didn't give you a one, two, three, so you're going to have to do a little work on your notes there if you want. The first is this. There is an authenticating sign. There is something about this by which people can see something supernatural is happening here. God is at work. This authenticates this gospel message. And interestingly, what we find through the book of Acts is that as the gospel goes into new territory, we see it accompanied with this same kind of speaking in tongues, speaking in known languages uh, that were previously unlearned. And it seems to authenticate the legitimacy of the gospel as it spreads into these new areas, these new people groups. Um, and then secondly, so not only is it authenticating, but secondly, it enables God's people with power that they didn't previously have. I don't think actually that they the disciples retained this gift or this language because we have no evidence that they continually go on and speak it. So if they learned, uh, I don't know, if they learned some language from you know, Cappadocia, they don't continue to speak this, this other language. It doesn't happen again. So it seems to be more of, a, of an instantaneous thing. And when, it, when we talk about a power that they continue to possess to, to work by the Spirit of God, I don't think it's about the, the language itself. Does that make sense? But God does things in their life and through them that they don't have the natural ability or natural power to do. And then the third sort of empowering impact, uh, I would say, is that uh, the Holy Spirit gives the disciples great courage. Courage that we didn't really see, th see them have before. And we see it first displayed in Peter. Peter is empowered to preach boldly. 
so I'll make a big statement here. I think the sermon that follows uh, from Peter, I'll call it the best sermon ever preached, ever, by someone other than Jesus, okay? Best sermon ever. 3,000 people are added to their number because of this message. And what's amazing is that this is just a few weeks after Peter has made the most horrendous mistakes of his discipleship. He was cowardly in the courtyard, unable to even identify as a follower of Christ just a few weeks earlier. But now in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's able to preach these words boldly. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I'm going to stop right here. I think sometimes we read this and we think um, what he's saying is that they haven't had time to get drunk yet because it's only nine. Which, let's be honest about it. You know, how long does it take someone to really tie one on here? I think a couple hours is probably sufficient for them to really get lushed, okay? Uh, If you can use that as a verb, I don't know. But what's actually happening here is during festival time, you wouldn't break fast until 10, 10 a.m. So he's saying nobody is eating or drinking at all. We're all fasting until 10. So that's just a little sub point. All right, moving on. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So we see that this, Peter's explaining the phenomenon here. He's saying, hey, this was prophesied. You were told about this. And actually, I think that only, I think this has only been partially fulfilled, Joel's prophecy here. I think verses 17 and 18 are the partial fulfillment. And 19 to 20, we're still kind of hoping for that or waiting for that. But with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here, we find the birth of the Christian church. We find the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The rule and the reign of God has begun. Not by taking up territories or building up walls, but the rule and reign in the hearts of men and women. His kingdom has begun. He has been inaugurated. And his kingdom grows as more and more people devote themselves to Christ and as we all give Christ more and more room and and influence in our life. That's how the kingdom of God grows. So the kingdom of God is not initially this earthly political reign, contrary to the disciples' expectation. Remember, they said, is it now that you're going to establish your kingdom? And Jesus says, not yet, basically. But rather, his rule and reign begins in the hearts of men. His kingdom is spiritual now. One day it will be political, physical, and total. Um, I'm reading uh, one of Tolkien's books right now in uh, Lord of the Rings. I'm on the third one uh, right now. And um, I just read the other day this scene where King Theoden, right? He's, he's headed to Gondor with his troops. And they're going to uh, take on the enemy and defend Gondor from attack. 
And along the way, they're, they're gathering up with them, uh, Aragorn and, and Gimli and others, they're gathering up those who would be loyal to the king and, and make the defense. And of course, they're a little disappointed with the number of troops that, that come out. And so Aragorn makes a departure, right? And he goes down the road of the dead. And he calls uh, uh, people to service who were previously... Um, treacherous murderers, those who had walked out on their commitments, uh, right, and abandoned their post. And he calls them to come and to serve the king. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, that is a good picture of the season that the church is in presently. We're not at the point of conquest. That comes later. There is a, a great battle that's coming later when God puts all evil under. And we ride with him in that battle, so to speak. But in the meantime, what God is doing is he is calling to himself those who would be loyal to him. And we have this unique season right now, this unique time in our lives to proclaim the gospel to others and invite them to be loyal to King Jesus. And we won't get that afterwards. We have this one season with which to do it. But this, so I just think that's something that we can remember. We need to remember what part of God's story we're in. Right now, we're in the recruiting phase. The next thing we see here is that uh, Peter wants to explain, well, hey, not only was this event, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit prophesied about, but actually the, the death and resurrection of Jesus were foretold as well. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. And now Peter is going to explain this. Fellow Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David he died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. But God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, uh, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah." Consider the courage and the boldness of Peter to make these declarations. And you may come away from a Sunday morning like, man, Eric was kind of blunt today. It was sort of like he was picking on me. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
But what Peter does with this explanation here is he, he unveils the mystery of God's redemptive plan. Right? It's not, it's not with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit here, uh, there is certainly a fulfillment of, pro, of promise from the prophet Joel. But more than that, we might even say that there is sort of a recapitulation or a reboot of God's prior work. If you think about this, when God gave the law to Israel, right? We have Moses who ascends Mount Sinai, receives the law from God, which he then passes on to Israel. Here we see Jesus ascending to heaven. He receives from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on all the people of God. In other words, this is a true and greater covenant than they had received before. The law which condemned them, the Spirit now which enabled them to obey and to be about the mission of God. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that Israelites, the Israelites couldn't even look steadily in the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was, glo- what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So Pentecost, just this wonderful event of Israel being able to finally say what we could not do uh, in our own strength, the obedience of the law, now we can do by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. We have now not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh as God has promised. Now I want you to think for a moment, if you're in the crowd, when Peter's delivering this message, and what he's telling you is that you weren't just listeners or spectators or readers of this event, but you were actors you were the ones that put this one to death, right? The last festival you were here, Passover. And you come back again, and now you're learning who that person was that was put to death and this power that is now available because the Holy Spirit of God has been shed abroad. And I just think your mind would just be on fire realizing, consider some of these things. That Jesus is the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3. That he is the true Passover lamb of the Exodus. That he is the superior scapegoat of Leviticus. He is the son of man in Daniel's vision. He is David's king of kings. He is David's holy one who did not see decay. He is Isaiah's suffering servant. And he has come to bring a true and better covenant, not on tablets of stone, but now by the Spirit we are whom, by whom we are given life and redemption. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God who made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That is an incredible moment. I think to stand there and realize your guilt in putting him to death and yet what God was doing would just, it would just shake you to your core. So when they hear this, they respond and they ask the right question. 
People heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So we might be sitting here and thinking, well, I didn't hit the nail. I didn't punch Jesus. I didn't insult him. But like the old words of the hymn that say, it was our sin that held him there. We too were actors in that scene because of our sin. But thankfully, as the passage says, this promise is for all of us. Not just for those who crucified Christ, but for all of, all of our Alaskan sinners as well. We have an opportunity to be forgiven. And so I think they ask the right question for us. What are we to do? We're to repent. The wonderful invitation that God gives to sinners. It's a, it's, it sounds like a harsh word. It is a great gift that we can turn from our sin and be assured of forgiveness based upon Christ. And we can then receive the Holy Spirit, power to obey that we didn't previously have, and power to go on and to be Christ's witnesses. And so this morning, I want to ask you, if you are one who you know you're a sinner, you know there are things that you have done against the Lord, but perhaps you have never turned in saving faith to Christ. Perhaps you have never repented of your sin and asked for his forgiveness and received the Holy Spirit of God. And I want to give you an opportunity um, to do that right now, um, this morning. If this is something you've been considering or putting off, please don't wait any longer. Would today be your day to repent and to receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit of God? So if you bow your heads, I'm going to offer a prayer. And if it's the desire of your heart, then I would ask you just to pray it quietly where you are. God, I recognize that I am a sinner. That I have offended you. That I have lived a life contrary to your ways. God, I recognize that the punishment that I deserve is in fact death and separation from you. Thank you, however, for sending Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins, to die in our place. And Lord, I receive his sacrifice on my behalf. I repent of sin. I believe in him. And I ask now, Lord, that I would receive the Holy Spirit of God, that I would be regenerated and learn to live for you. Lord, we thank you for this salvation, this great salvation you have secured for us. Father, that you've planned it. Son, that you purchased it. And Spirit of God, that you have applied it to us. Thank you for such a great salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.